Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. John chapter 20, starting at verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his sight, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Heavenly Fathers, we come to that evermore, everlasting, living, sure word that is the word of God. We pray, please, that you would speak to us very profoundly and indeed speak to us in a way that uh, gives us confidence, uh, not only in your word, but in who you are, and in your great promises to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do sit down. Well, let me encourage you to turn your Bibles uh, to the uh, reading that Esther read for us. Uh, page uh, 1089 is the, uh, is, the re- is the page number, John chapter 20. We looked at the first part of it last Sunday, Easter Sunday uh, evening. Uh, Chris helped us through that. And we're going to carry on looking through this chapter and next chapter in the next few weeks. Now, as you find that uh, passage, let me ask you, have you ever been in the wrong place at the wrong time? Uh, I have. Um, When I was working in the newspaper industry, each year I attended a national promotions and marketing event attended by newspaper sales managers from around the country. 
And every year on the evening of the final day of the three-day event, we're invited to a posh dinner um, and uh, we bring the whole event to a close. And every year at the end of the meal, national awards were given out and a draw was made with three top prizes given to those of us who were there. And the draw was kind of this incentive to get people to stay to the end of the event uh, because you would only be awarded the prize if you were there to collect it. Now, despite that, before the award ceremony part of the evening began, I was pretty sure I wouldn't be getting any awards, so I decided to leave because I had a long journey and a very busy day the next day. Anyway, when I got into the office the next day, I had a call from another newspaper sales manager from another part of the country and uh, who'd been at the dinner that, that night before, and he said to me, I bet you wish you hadn't left early. I had no idea what he was on about. Then he explained that my name had been drawn out of the hat and I'd won first prize in the draw, first prize being a state-of-the-art home entertainment system. But because I wasn't there to claim the prize, the draw was made again. Well, sound a little bit surprised. I knew the bloke who'd called me up, and uh, he was a bit of a practical joker, so I thought he was winding me up. But later the morning, uh, in the morning, another colleague called me to tell me the same story. I'd won the state-of-the-art home entertainment system, but because I wasn't there to claim my prize, someone else had got it. Now, I'm not looking for sympathy, just I want you to be in the story. Anyway, by the time I had several more calls uh, from, uh, from uh, that morning from around the country, it began to dawn on me this wasn't a wind-up, an elaborate story. I really had missed out on a fantastic prize because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or if you prefer, I wasn't in the right place at the right time. Now, as we turn to John chapter 20, Thomas was certainly not in the right place at the right time. And he didn't just miss out on a home entertainment system, but arguably... He missed out on the most important experience in the history of the planet, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Can you believe it? He wasn't there. It happened, verse 19, on the first evening of the first day of the week, the evening of the day the disciples had discovered that Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb that we were looking at last week. They were together, verse 19, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. And then it happened, end of verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Well, I bet they were. The events earlier in the day, recorded at the start of the chapter, had led John to believe that Jesus had risen. As he looked inside the the almost empty tomb, he was convinced the body was gone. But you see, we saw this last week, verse 5, 6 and 7, the burial clothes were there. And they were folded, verse 7. And the way they were folded led him to believe that this was no grave robbery. All the evidence as he looked in at the tomb led him to conclude that the most plausible explanation for the missing body was the most unexpected event, a resurrection from the dead. But it's one thing seeing folded grave clothes, it's quite another thing seeing the risen Jesus. And that's what happened that evening. Verse 20, Jesus showed them his nail-pierced hands and his side where the soldiers had pierced him with a sword to ensure that he was indeed dead. This was Jesus all right. It was a jaw-dropping moment. A high-fiving moment, if they did that in those days. Jesus was alive. And the sight of his hands and his side reminded them, if they needed any reminding, that he had been crucified, which is why he could say to them, do you see it there? Peace be with you. He says it three times in verse 19, 
in verse 21, and then again a week later at the end of verse 26. Peace be with you. It's clearly important for it to be recorded repeatedly. Now, while it was the normal greeting of the day, this was no normal meeting. Jesus has been crucified, died and buried, and now his rising again meant that peace really could be with them. Jesus' crucifixion and now his resurrection brought them peace with God through the forgiveness of their sins. And now they were to go and tell the world the brilliant news that peace with God was available to anyone who through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ came to repent and believe in him. See verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. The Father has sent me to reconcile the world to himself. Now I'm sending you to the world to tell them this breathtaking, life-changing news, the news that it is possible to be at peace with God. And said Jesus, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to enable you to do this, to empower you to go and tell this good news of forgiveness and peace. That's verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. So they were to go and tell people how it's possible to be forgiven. And so we might expect the next verse to read, so they got up full of excitement and began to tell everyone that yet they knew that Jesus had died and risen again so everybody could be forgiven. But no, that's not how it goes on. Because before the disciples went, John tells us something very important. Verse 24, now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Thomas was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or if you prefer, not in the right place at the right time. When Jesus appeared to the disciples, Thomas was somewhere else. Who knows where he was? Maybe he just popped out to the co-op to buy some, some chocolate. It was, after all, Easter. Uh, or, or, or maybe he went somewhere else for much longer. It doesn't really matter what the details were. What matters is he missed the main event. And I can just imagine the conversation when he got back. Verse 25, the other disciples told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Thomas, you will never believe it, but while you're out, Jesus came and stood to the moment. Thomas, he's alive. And I can imagine Thomas' response, you're right, I will never believe it. And look, if this is your idea of a joke, some sort of elaborate wind-up, you need to know, now is not the time. I'm not in the mood. And frankly, I'm surprised at you lot. This is not the sort of thing to be joking about. And so he said to them, verse 25, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. If I'm going to believe that Jesus is risen, verse 25, I need to see it. More than that, I need to touch his body. Now, look, let's stop here for a moment and think about what's going on. At first sight, this seems an entirely reasonable request. It seems if Thomas is asking for evidence, he's asking for proof that Jesus is not dead, but has risen from the dead and honestly if you're going to believe that someone has defeated death and come back to life you are going to want hard evidence too that is an entirely reasonable request indeed if you're here this evening and you're not yet convinced that Jesus rose from the dead let me not only thank you for coming this evening but let me tell you that I agree that wanting evidence is an entirely reasonable desire 
That's why in these last weeks we've been encouraging people to read this, this short book, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Um, uh, Chris mentioned it last week. Uh, we've mentioned it quite a few times in the last few weeks. Lee Strobel was an investigative journalist. Unsure about the resurrection himself, he set about to look at the evidence and he lays out in here, in this little book, the evidence that he gathered and he concludes that Jesus being raised from the dead is the most plausible explanation for the events of Easter Sunday. Will you pick up a copy before the evening is out? There's more copies uh, over in the church centre through the double doors on your left. They're a pound each. Last week we were given them for free. And if you're going, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time then... Just take one for nothing. It's okay. If you can't afford the pound, take one because it's worth reading. Now look, wanting evidence for the resurrection is entirely reasonable and right. And so we might be tempted to be sympathetic with Thomas here. But before we're too supportive of Thomas's position, let's be clear that Thomas is wanting more than evidence. And I say that because there is already plenty of evidence for Thomas to believe. This is really important. If you've drifted off, stay with me here. Firstly, there's the circumstantial evidence about the empty tomb. The disciples have told him about that, but that wasn't enough for him. Then there's the forensic evidence surrounding the way the grave clothes were folded, but that didn't convince him either. And then there's the evidence from the eyewitnesses. The other disciples saw the empty tomb, saw the grave clothes wrapped up, and then they saw the risen Jesus. Eyewitness evidence. It was way beyond doubt that Jesus was risen. There's plenty of evidence. But you see, Thomas wants more than evidence. He's demanding a personal experience. And the difference is huge. In verse 25, Thomas is saying, I need to experience it myself. Do you see what he says in verse 25? Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I won't believe it. See, unless I have first-hand experience of the resurrection, I won't believe. And while that's what Thomas got, he did get first-hand experience, there is a huge problem with that position. And we'll see that as we read on. Verse 26 then, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. Now, as I was talking about this with my colleagues on Wednesday, Chris very helpfully pointed out the time delay here. A week later, a whole week has passed by. Can you imagine the discussion between the disciples and Thomas? Every day for a week, Thomas, we're telling you, we saw Jesus. Look, guys, I've had enough. Let it go. Or maybe they just had a moratorium on the subject. For the whole week, they skirted around the subject. The resurrection sighting of Jesus became the unspoken elephant in the room. So whenever Thomas walked in, they quickly changed the subject. And there was that embarrassing silence. Well, whatever went on for a whole week, it was all very awkward. But then, verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. There it is again, peace be with you. And it happened exactly the same as it did the first time. Disciples gathered, doors locked, but this time doubting Thomas was present in the right place at the right time. And verse 27, Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas got what he wanted, a hands-on experience. He literally got his hands on Jesus. Fingers where the nails were. 
hands into his side. Ugh. Thomas got exactly what he wanted and it left him in no doubt, verse 20, 28. He said, my Lord and my God. Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then that is the only inclusion there is. Jesus really is who he said he was. He is Lord and God. And he should be worshipped and adored and followed for the rest of our lives. And incidentally, that, that might just be why some people don't want to look into the evidence for the resurrection. They like their lives as they are. They don't want to have to face up to the fact that Jesus just might be Lord and God because that would be far too inconvenient because you've suddenly got to treat him differently. Anyway, doubting Thomas became believing Thomas. But only after he'd personally experienced the resurrection. And it's the next words that are the most important words in some ways to understand what's going on. Jesus told him, verse 29, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Here's the key to understanding the point of all this. This is what we have to understand about the Thomas event. We're all like Thomas. We're all in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or if you prefer, not in the right place at the right time. If for us it's the wrong place, we're in Sheffield, not Jerusalem. And we're definitely at the wrong time, 21st century, not 1st century. We're 2,000 miles away and 2,000 years late. Wrong place, wrong time. But we're no different to Thomas. He may have only been 200 yards and two minutes away in the wrong place at the wrong time. But in this case, a miss is as good as a mile. He wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the disciples just as we weren't. But here's the thing. The disciples were. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection events. And Thomas should have believed them. He should have believed the evidence they gave him because if everyone demanded what Thomas demanded, namely a personal hand-on experience of the risen Jesus, if that's what we all insist upon in order to believe, then within a generation, Christianity is going to be done for, finished. Because after 40 days, Jesus is going to be ascended to the right hand of the Father. And as we saw in verses 21 to 23, the message of sins forgiven and being at peace with God is in the hands of the disciples telling others. See, the apostles had seen. They had the circumstantial and forensic evidence of the tomb. They became eyewitnesses with first-hand experience of the risen Jesus. They were appointed by Jesus to go and proclaim the message of forgiveness and peace with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But if everyone said to them what Thomas said, I won't believe unless I have have a, a personal experience of the risen Jesus, then that is it. End of. So, verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you believe, but blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. That's us. People who have not seen, and many of us, yet believe. But here's the question, what are we to believe in if we haven't seen? Those of us who haven't actually seen the risen Jesus, what are we to believe in? Well, we're to believe the testimony of the apostles. We're to believe what they tell us because they did see and they have written it down for us. That's precisely what John says in the next verses. Look at verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, really important, the Christian gospel is not anti-evidence. 
The event with Thomas is not anti-evidence. We believe in evidence. We are to believe on the basis of the evidence we have been given. That is precisely why John writes his gospel, to give us evidence. That's what he says in verse 31. Actually, I love the way that he writes these two verses, verse 30 and 31. In verse 30, John says, There are loads of miraculous things that Jesus did that I haven't recorded. Tons of things in his life that I haven't recorded. And he says in verse 30, I'm not expecting you to believe on the base of what I haven't written down for you. Rather, verse 31, what I have written down, I've written down so that you can believe. I've written a whole book about Jesus' life. Not everything he ever did, but I've written a book about his life and especially his miracles. And this evidence is laid out for you so that you can believe. Isn't that brilliant? I don't we believe all sorts of things in life without having a first-hand experience of them. We believe the evidence that others put before us. Indeed, when people refuse to believe what has been clearly proven, we think they're a sandwich short of a picnic. Did you hear the news a few weeks back, only about a month ago, about 61-year-old Mike Hughes? He believes the earth is flat and not round. You see, you're laughing already. And so he built a homemade rocket, and on a Saturday afternoon in March this year, in the Majavi Desert in California, he got in his homemade green rocket and it propelled him 1,875 feet into the sky. It's an impressive thing. There's video of it on the BBC website. It's remarkable. He went 1,875 feet up in, this, up in the air in this rocket so that he could see for himself, so that he could prove that the world is flat and not round. In an interview, he said, I don't want to take anyone else's word for it. The rocket successfully deployed its parachutes and glided back down to a... Amazingly, Mike didn't su- sustain any serious injuries. But sadly for Mike, he didn't get high enough to establish whether the Earth is flat or not. <laughs> and it's important for you to know that he's known in his community as Mad Mike. This is all on the BBC website. And why do I add that bit in? Because when people refuse to believe the plain evidence... We think they've got a screw loose. Mad Mike. The point is this. Throughout life, we don't insist on having a personal experience of everything to believe anything. I've never seen the golden poison frog. It is the world's most deadly frog. They live in Colombia. All I, uh, and I've never seen anyone die from heart failure having come into contact with the lethal toxin coated oil that is all over its skin. But I can tell you the next time that I'm in a humid forest on the Pacific Ocean of Colombia and someone says to me, don't touch that, it's the deadly golden poison frog, I'm going to believe them. And I'm not going to insist on having hands-on evidence. It's the way we operate in life. We don't demand personal hands-on experience of everything in order to believe it. Yes, we want evidence, and rightly so. But there is plenty of evidence that the, round, that the world is round, not flat. And there's plenty of evidence that contact with the golden poison frog will kill you. And John says, here's the evidence for Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God. Laid out for you. You don't have to have a personal hand-on experience of the risen Jesus to believe it. Here's historical eyewitness evidence laid out for you to investigate and read for yourself. 
So if you're here tonight, again, thank you for coming. If you're not yet convinced who Jesus is, let me encourage you to read John's gospel. Read it with a friend. And as you read it, you'll read of seven miracles that Jesus did. John calls them um, miraculous signs in verse 30. Because each miracle is like a signpost telling you who Jesus is and the way to peace with God and eternal life. The first miraculous sign comes in chapter 2. Jesus was at a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the wine ran out. What a disaster at a wedding. So Jesus miraculously changed the water in huge stone water butts into wine. The best wine they'd ever tasted. The first miracle that he does in John's gospel. The second miraculous sign is recorded in chapter 4. The dad of a boy who was dying pleaded with Jesus to heal his lad. And without medicine or surgical procedure, in fact, with just a word from Jesus, the lad was miles away, he just said the word and the boy was cured. In chapter 6, we see Jesus surrounded by a huge crowd, much bigger crowd than this, 5,000 people. They were all hungry. So Jesus took a little boy's packed lunch, five loaves of bread and two fish, and he fed the entire crowd with it. How did he do that? Somehow he was able to make the bread and the fish multiply, and they had so much food, they were all stuffed by the end of it, and there was food left over. And then in the same chapter, John tells us how Jesus suspended the laws of gravity and walked across the Sea of Galilee. I've been on that sea. It's proper deep. We're not talking a little duck mill pond. We're talking about a big, big sea. And in chapter 9, Jesus healed a blind man, a man born blind, a man who'd never seen a thing, lived his entire life in darkness. Suddenly he could see trees and flowers and the faces of his family and the colour of his cat and suddenly he could play tennis and cricket and football because he could hit the ball. Well, I didn't have tennis, but you know what I'm saying. And then in chapter 11, Jesus arrived in a town called Bethany to discover that his friend Lazarus had died. He'd been dead for four days already. He'd been buried for four days already. And Jesus went to Lazarus' tomb and cried out to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. And sure enough, he came out of the grave, a dead man raised to life. And then, of course, on Easter Sunday, Jesus himself beating death. And John says in verse 31, these things, these miraculous signs are written that you may believe, that you may have faith. And that is very important to know. This is so that you may believe, that you may have faith. Faith is based on evidence, historical eyewitness evidence. And the evidence is laid out for us in John's gospel. And we're asked to believe or have faith in this evidence. And that is important, I say, because sometimes when Christians don't know the answers to questions they're asked, and when an unbeliever says to them, why do you believe such and such? Sometimes I hear Christians say, oh, that's where you've just got to have faith. No, that is a dreadful answer. As if faith is something you've just got to muster up from inside you to believe stuff that is unbelievable and inexplicable. That is so unhelpful. Faith or belief comes from looking into the evidence that John has written down for us. So if you're not sure about these things, then look into them. Indeed, let me say to you that being here tonight, listening to the Bible, you are in exactly the right place at the right time. Here, reading the Bible is where we discover the evidence Evidence that means we can believe. And why is that so important as we draw to a close? Well, believing is so important because it is by believing, end of verse 31, 
by believing we can have life in Jesus' name. Eternal life. And believing here, not just intellectually believing, but trusting Jesus, having faith in Jesus. You see, it couldn't be more important. Eternal life is at stake. Life beyond the grave is the prize. Life with God forever. 30 years ago or more, I missed out on a state-of-the-art home entertainment system because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Annoying as it was, I got over it. I can live without it. But missing out on this, we cannot live without this, not forever. It's something we shouldn't trifle with. At least it's something that's worth looking into. So again, if you were here this evening and you wouldn't yet say you're a follower of Jesus, let me urge you to look into the evidence for the resurrection. Grab a copy of the case for Easter. Read John's Gospel with a friend, somebody who you've come with tonight. If you haven't got a friend that you've come with tonight, speak to Chris or I. We'll read John's Gospel with you. And if you are a Christian here this evening, know that we've been given the greatest news there ever is. Peace with God through death and resurrection. Like the first disciples, we should go and tell. And what are we going to go and tell people? Well, here's the evidence we need to present to people. So the next time someone says to you, Christian, about to ask you why you believe what you believe, just say to them gently, will you read the Bible with me? Will you read John's Gospel with me and I'll show you what I believe? And Christian here, if you don't know the evidence for the resurrection, get a copy of Lee Strobel's book for yourself. Why? Because you need to know the evidence in order to pass it on to others. And look, knowing this will not only help you to tell others, it'll encourage you to keep going as well. So the next time you feel like Thomas, and there are times when we do, doubting whether to believe this because you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, 2,000 years late and 2,000 miles away, if you get these things clear, you'll be able to remind yourself why you believe, that you have good, solid eyewitness evidence on which you believe. And knowing that keeps us going now and into eternity for eternal life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that although we're just like Thomas in the wrong place at the wrong time, we thank you that you've given us all we need to believe. That we don't need us kind of hands-on first-hand experience of seeing the risen Jesus because we have John's gospel and indeed all the Bible written for us. And so we pray that you'd help us, uh, those of us who are not yet convinced of these things, to take the time to look into these things so that we might know whether it's true or not. For those of us who are convinced, help us to be uh, those who, who, who kind of know the evidence well enough that we not only know it for ourselves, we can pass it on, this most wonderful message of life, of forgiveness, of peace with you. We thank you for it. And we thank you that it's not blind faith, but certain and sure here in your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.